All right, children are dismissed off to class. If you're a teacher, you should probably go with them. And it is the fourth Sunday of the month, and which means first service, we send our middle schoolers out as well this morning. So if you're in middle school, uh, you get to depart as well right now. So thank you. The rest of you are stuck with me. Um, and uh, I would encourage you, if you don't have a bulletin, a little handout, grab a handout. Because a part of the message today is heeding the Word of God, and one of the ways that we can maximize what we do in here on a Sunday is to jot down our questions, jot down our notes, jot down things that may stand out to us for us to look at later. Um, and so, uh, so for me, that's a really big way for me to stay engaged, is just to keep kind of writing things down and, and that sort of thing. Open your Bibles to Luke. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 this morning, and we've been in a series in, in the Gospel of Luke for a good season of time now. Uh, really great, Jonathan, to have you back. Uh, we got to hear from Zach. We missed Zach all summer because he was off serving in Puerto Rico, and Jonathan is freshly back from leading Sunday morning worship services at, at a national park where he was stationed with a, a, a ministry crew. So we're going to get to hear a little bit more about that, but awesome, awesome having you back, Jonathan. So, um, the Christian life consists of mountaintop experiences, right? We have these moments, these peak moments that are really, really incredible, where God meets us in powerful ways, and where we have sort of these breakthrough moments, or we have these epiphanies, and oftentimes we can't even predict when they are, but mountaintop experiences are few and far between, and they don't last long. So if you are a brand new Christian and you are still on the mountaintop, let me warn you, these are few and far between and they don't last long. It's a little bit like the rest of life. It's not that we just live up there. Here's what's really powerful is I thought about the flow of Scripture. A part of why we teach through a book of the Bible is there are lessons not just in the individual paragraphs or the individual accounts, but there's teaching in the linkage of those accounts. There's teaching in the flow of what the author is communicating to us. As I've studied the scripture year after year after year, I become more impressed with, with the fact that there is a supernatural author to the scripture. The Holy Spirit uses individual personalities like Dr. Luke to write this gospel of Jesus according to Luke. But there's this flow and this idea, and, and here's something I want to show you from last week. Last week, we looked at what's commonly called the transfiguration by theologians. It's when Jesus goes up to the mountaintop, and he gives a little sneak peek of who he really is, this glory that, that, that he really has had from, from all eternity with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, but he's contained in a body right now. And here's what's powerful about looking at last week's passage and this week's passage as they sit side by side in your Bible. That we go from a mountain high to a messy valley where most of life happens. It's super powerful that Jesus models a life not mostly up on a mountain where a few people of his closest friends get to see the dramatic glory of God, but rather he models most of his time was spent among us regular people in the valley of life, just sort of the regular everydayness of life. In fact, it's so infrequent that we have a name for it. We call it the transfiguration because there's a few glimpses of this. There's a few mountaintop peaks in Jesus's 
ministry and life that we get to see, but most of it is among regular people. Here's what that shows us. It shows that God is on the move, not only amongst us in the regular everydayness of us, uh, of it, but we don't have to wait for the next mountaintop experience. We don't have to wait um, for, for, you know, to try to recapture something that went on before, but rather in the midst of our everyday life, in fact, every person we encounter, catch this, is an invitation to witness the glory of God. Every person you ever have laid eyes on, the people sitting next to you, the people that you are overlooking right now, they bear the imprint of God. And so the glory of God is actually manifest in the living, breathing, speaking people that that we get annoyed with, that we overlook, that we're bored with. That's an invitation to step into that. So if you want to show your love for God, here it is. Love the people in your world, love them well, and never stop. That is a daily expression for the rest of your life to just express your love for God. That is one of the best ways the Bible teaches of how to love God. And by the way, as you step into that, um, you'll be on your knees. You'll be hungry to learn from God. You'll be praying to God. Why? Because you'll need what? Patience? Yeah? You'll need a little bit of kindness thrown in. You'll need a whole bunch of gentleness. You'll need to restrain certain things that are your natural trait. It will keep you very, very dependent. Here's where we're going this morning. Uh, today we're going to talk about, uh, about getting a doctor's note. This is going to be a doctor's note that we can actually read. Anyone ever get a, a, a doctor's note? You have no idea what it was? Here's a prescription that will save your life. Okay, thank you. Huh? Like you get in the car, like I can't even read this. I, don't, I hope someone else can read this and I hope they get it right because this doesn't make any sense to me. We're going to get a doctor's note we can actually read and understand. Now don't raise your hands, but some of you in this room are the type of people that sought out a doctor's note to get you out of PE in school. Am I right? Yeah, some of you are out there. I know that's true. Here's the thing, though. There's another group of you who would get a doctor's note to say that you are able to be in PE because if you take PE away from some of us in our scholastic career, there's nothing to live for in school. Like that is what we live for is to be out running around. And if you take that away, school really becomes a bore. So I don't think those are the same people. I think those are two different personality types. Um, I had a really bloody head for about a month. Some of you know this, but I've had a major skiing accident, a 10-inch scar that went across my head. Uh, many of you are like, that explains it. And what happened was all the stitches and everything that happened, I couldn't even wash my hair for like weeks on end. I was newly dating this girl, Becky, and I was really into her, and I was, I was really hoping she wasn't going to bail on me because I smelled like rotting roadkill uh, most of the time. And, and it was right around the finals of my first, I had finished GE, uh, my general education at West Valley, and I was just going into my, arch- my architecture studies, and I was going to transfer to Cal Poly. That was my plan. And I was just going into finals, and, um, and when, you're, when you're trying to have your life saved, the last thing on your mind is that you need a doctor's note for college. Like I was, you know, I didn't think I would need that. So I communicated with all my profs. I said, I cannot make finals. I have, I've had a major head injury, and I'm laid up. Um, well, every single one of them, except one, either flunked me for the semester or gave me an incomplete. Mind you, I was going in with pretty strong grades in all my classes. You know, the one class that didn't flunk me and gave me an incomplete was because I showed up at the final like rotting roadkill. 
I was so frustrated that I was getting these communications back from teachers uh, that I was just, if I didn't show, I wasn't going to do it. So Becky drove me to West Valley. I showed up for a three-hour final. I finished it in 10 minutes because my head was throbbing. I had scar and, you know, blood. I mean, it was, I was a mess. And I hand in my paper and looked at him because he didn't believe me either. Every one of them just thought I was, I was lying about this. And so he graciously gave me an incomplete. Point of the story, I should have got a doctor's note that said this guy cannot physically be at the finals. I didn't do that. And ultimately, God used that for good. But it was a really, really frustrating season. This is not the kind of doctor's note this morning that we're going to see in the text that gets us out of PE. This gets us out of soul-killing ruts that develop in our life. We all have soul-killing, life-sucking ruts that we get into, and the scriptures today are going to show us how to get out of some of those. I noticed a really curious thing. As I read this passage and began to study it and look at it, I read these sort of four seemingly different accounts that didn't tie in. And sort of immediately as I read it, I read it and I thought, wow, the same things that plagued the early disciples plague the church today. The church, just for clarification, is not this building. Is that clear? It is not a place we come to. It is the people of God. God inhabits individual people now. And so when we gather, we gather to be the church. We don't really gather at a church. And I know we use language that kind of confuses that sometimes. But just to be clear at the outset of what that is. So, as we start this morning, by the way, as well, let me say this. I want to bring up, I'm going to bring up four things that I think plague the church today and our, and our, and our ailments, their sicknesses within the church. Um, and as we do this, what I want to do is this. I want to state that as a Christian, we have a going in position uh, on a Sunday morning, it's really, really good news what we just saying. If this concept is new to you, that I have no other help but the blood of Jesus, that sounds really, really freaky if you don't understand some context to it. But let me just say this. It is great news. The gospel literally means good news. It is great, great news for you. You can be deeply thankful this morning on Today Afresh that your righteousness, that your purity before God has nothing to do with what you are able to do in the past, right now in this moment, or any day moving forward. The gospel is a proclamation of what God has already done, God has already accomplished. That's the simple truth of the gospel, and it's great news today that we can't do something to, to make ourselves right before God. So we go in with a humble position as Christians, recognizing we need a savior today, recognizing that we have faults today, huge faults, huge sin sickness that needs to be dealt with. And so we're here to humbly say that we're not here to hide that. We're not here to point fingers elsewhere. We're here to look at us and to to literally seek out the doctor's orders. Wouldn't it make sense that someone who knows every intricate ounce of who we are, that we would listen carefully to his, to his instructions for us? If you are new here, let me burst the bubble early on. The church that you are attending is imperfect. It is led by imperfect shepherds. It is filled with imperfect congregants. We are structured imperfectly. We play music imperfectly. I speak imperfectly. Not, not sort of a, a load off. You're like, phew, because I was going to let you know, Pastor, but you already seem to know that. That's really good news to, to just know that, that the church is imperfect. 
By all means, Christian, join a church. God's plan is for, for you is not to run solo. God's plan for you is to be born again. And like any other birth, you're born into a family. So join a church, but hear me clearly. Do not build your faith on a church. The church will let you down. Jesus will never let you down. Build your faith on Jesus and join a church. The church is going to let you down. It's filled with sinners who are in progress of being saved by grace. It's people who are maturing into Christ-likeness. So join a church, but build your faith on Jesus. I absolutely love it when people move from a process around here of using language like you and your church to us and our church and we language. You know why? It indicates to me that they have moved from being spectators in the stands to being players on the field ready to co-labor with Christ. When someone comes and says, your church is this and you do this and you do that, that's fine. It's part of the process. But they are in the stands observing the work going on. Some of you are football fans and we're about to watch football on Sundays. The second half of church for many people in the nation, right? Go home and watch your football. Isn't it easy to watch other people exerting massive amounts of energy, taking the blunt force trauma to their head, and for you to sit in judgment easily saying, man, you shoulda, woulda, coulda done this, that, and the other thing, as you watch it in super slow-mo from nine angles. Sometimes that's a snapshot of the church, that people are in the stands, and the second they step on, on the field, they're like, wow, that kind of hurts getting tackled. Wow, this is kind of difficult to move the ball when there's opposition. So... Let me give you a central truth that's on your paper. This is a foolproof sermon notes this morning. I don't think there's any fill in the blanks. Maybe there are. Maybe I left a few. But the central truth, it says CT. It's in bold. It says this. Jesus not only diagnoses the sickness that plagues the church, but prescribes the cure. Now, some of you haven't been in medical school for a long time, so let's go over a couple of quick definitions. I use these terms really, really carefully. A diagnosis is the identification of the nature of an illness or other problem by examination of the symptoms. Jesus diagnoses the sickness. Secondly, he prescribes the cure. To prescribe is to advise and authorize the use of a medicine or treatment for someone especially in writing. So we're going to look at the written prescription of Jesus today. What I think we'll see today are four common problems with the people of God. So again, I'm saying the four common problems of the church. And I'm talking about capital C church, meaning the church universal, those who are bound in Christ and share the Holy Spirit. I think these four problems are seen both by people inside the church and people outside the church. One of the fun things of being a pastor is the moment I, I, I identify myself as a pastor, I open myself to every bad church experience anyone's ever had. Pastor, could I talk to you for a second? Sure. And they begin to tell me what's wrong with the church. And they are describing a, a, a symptom. They're describing something that sounds, oftentimes it sounds very familiar. I go, yeah, that's, that really grieves me that that happened. It's deeply saddening that that happens. Now, there's a flip side to it as well. But these four things I read, and again, this is why it jumped off the page as I read this passage of Scripture, and I thought, wow, these four things, 
church people would say this plagues the church. If we could just grow in this or heal in this, it would be amazing. And those outside the church point the finger and see, see those Christians? This is what's wrong with the church. All right? So here we go. I'm going to just lay them out. We're going to look at two of them this week and two of them next week. But here they are. Number one is ineffectiveness in ministry. People say we don't see real change. It's popular right now for popular people. One of the problems with celebrity culture is sometimes we put our celebrity on people and we haven't really checked their credentials. I, I, have, I have everything. I'm thrilled with Jonathan. Jonathan, how old are you? 22. 22. I was about to say, when we put, when we put a, ton of, um, a ton of weight to a 22-year-old worship leader's word on, on, on mat- matters of life and faith, and then that person falls in sin or that person changes their mind or that person's faith and theology crumbles because of something, and then many are led astray because they say, well, wow, he wrote my, fa- my, my favorite worship songs. He's my favorite celebrity Christian, and he's fallen. Do you see how dangerous that is? How about celebrity speakers who are just really, really powerful, gifted teachers, but then their faith crumbles, and again, people are led astray and and, and wander in that. Nothing against 22-year-old worship leaders. I love 22-year-old worship leaders. But church, one of the blessings of this particular church family is we have like a healthy family Thanksgiving dinner table. We have all the generations represented here. And we want to listen to and, and get a, a broader perspective than just an old, aging, dying church that says this is how it used to be and how it ought to be again, nor a, a, an up-and-coming church that has not the breadth of life and experience that's there. So a favorite pastime right now is this, for celebrity pastors, and they have a massive platform right now. They wrote a book, they've grown a church, they've led worship, and what they do is they say this, here is a common thing. Uh, they, they will point to the fact that there is ineffectiveness. There's not real life change. And how damaging it is to the name of Christ and to Christians everywhere to say, I'm on the inside. I'm a pastor. And this massive mega ministry you saw growing, man, much of it was Disneyland. There wasn't real life change. There wasn't real spirit change to it. And so ineffectiveness in ministry is a cause of struggle for many people in the church and those outside the church saying that's what's wrong with the church. Doesn't it stand a reason that if we are possessed by the very Holy Spirit of God that we would see book of Acts type stuff just going on all the time? So that's a valid question. That's, that's sickness number one. Here's sickness number two. That the church is not listening to the words of Jesus. That it's not being preached, that it's not being heeded, that it's not being followed, that they don't really listen to the words of Jesus. And frankly, that they're fearful to really dig into what, to what Jesus actually said. So if there is the preaching of the word, it's sort of the same things. It's a, it's a soft, softball approach. And, and they don't really dig into things that are, that, are, that are difficult and challenging and frustrating. Here's another thing, that there's pride and infighting within the local church. Ever hear of a church or a Christian ministry that struggles with this? Yeah, we all have. So pride and infighting in the local church. Shouldn't it stand a reason that that should be like just almost non-existent in a Christian organization? Finally this, we're going to look at rivalry and tribalism. So there's pride and infighting within the church, but there's rivalry and tribalism with other local churches or local ministries. So let me, let me say this. If there isn't gracious unity 
If there's pride and infighting in a local church, doesn't it stand to reason that there's not much leftover uh, grace and blessing and sort of a long, you know, a, a, a long patience with other ministries that aren't just like you? Yeah, and we see that all the time. We see churches that that fight and quibble over the tiniest little nuance of change in, in their you know, beliefs or the methodology or whatever else. And so sometimes churches and organizations and denominations can get on a tinier, 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 tinier little square of truth and they welcome all their closest friends, three people that can fit on their little circle and then they pass the test of anyone who can't pass the test and isn't in the, in the club. So these are things, church, these four things are things that we see just as problematic within the church and without the church. If you've engaged at all with people who aren't Christians, I can almost assure you've heard some version of at least one of these, if not all four. So these problems are really symptoms under the surface, uh, which, which, which really ties into sin. The Bible addresses all of these, not just in our passage, but in so many places. Here's how I want to frame this. If you're new with us, welcome. I'm just super thrilled that you're here. But these next two weeks, it's going to be a little bit more internal looking. I don't want to, I'm not interested in looking at other churches and how they're doing. I'm not looking, I'm not interested in looking at other denominations or other Christian ministries and pointing the finger there. The going in stance I want is this. I want us as a church to open our hands and say, God, see if there's any wicked way in me. God, would you look at Neighborhood Bible Church and would you investigate here and Spirit, would you blow through here and clean out the junk that needs to be here? We looked at this as a staff Monday morning. We just said, hey, which of these four is evident here and how can we begin to repent? How can we begin to address this and look at these things? Let's acknowledge that we are prone as individuals, we are prone to blame other people and we have a natural bent toward the self. Uh, some of you will track with this more than others because you watched Scooby-Doo growing up. But it's shocking sometimes to discover that we are our own worst enemy when it comes to our own spiritual growth. And yet we are so quick to want to put the blame out there. We are so quick, quick to want to put it on the failure of someone else and not address the really difficult and really scary work of looking internally at ourselves. So what I would say is individual Christian, look at yourself and collectively church family, let's look at ourselves. Let's look at our church family first. Leroy Imes is an author and he says this, listen carefully. He says, we all imagine our hearts to be better than they are. In fact, the human heart will allow us to vindicate ourselves in self-deception. The heart will be the ringleader to camouflage the path to ruin. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first century, the very first Christians, and we're going to look at at their uh, experience, and then we're going to draw some parallels to, to what's going on here. Remember for a moment that as we look at the disciples, these are human beings who had direct access to Jesus, physically. And they had these failings. That's really powerful to think about. They had direct access. They were being taught by the master teacher, Jesus. And we're going to see these four failings in the disciples from our text. So number one, I want to look at uh, sickness one, which is ineffective ministry. In Jesus' day, we see this over and over, that huge crowds were attracted to Jesus. And over time, some remained 
and then others would leave. In fact, if you read the Gospels a little bit more carefully than a surface read, you realize Jesus actually prompted these, these departures by saying something really difficult, by sort of drawing a line and saying, you want to know what discipleship is? It's this. Anyone want to step over? And less people would step over than the massive crowds. You give it more time, and it's not just some who've remained, but a few remain with Jesus. And as I thought about that in Jesus' day, the Gospels are really clear to record that. Here's what's true today. Today, crowds of people are interested in and attracted to the, to the Bible. The book all about Jesus, the book all about uh, Christianity. It still is just the world's number one seller, translated in the most languages. You never, ever hear this. Massive crowds are attracted to Jesus. There are conferences and churches, uh, particularly in the South, that have stadiums full. Go to the Shark Tank and go to church every Sunday. There are mass crowds that are still attracted to the gospel and to Jesus. But over time, crowds tend to thin out. And over more time, only a few remain faithful to Jesus. Giving credence to what Jesus predicted, which says, narrow is the way that leads to life. And what does he say? Only a few ever find it. That's a really sobering thing, Jesus said. There's this wide highway, and it's leading to death. And there's this narrow path, and a few find it. So crowds look to be amazed, and people tend to want results. Look at verse 37, chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke. It says this, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain. What mountain? This is the Mount of Transfiguration. They went from a mountaintop high to a demonically possessed child. How's that for a mess? On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. I don't know about you, but whenever I've come off of a spiritual mountain, the crowds are always ready for me. And the crowds always have needs. My crowds tend to be churches and my family. I don't know what yours looks like, but but they come in the form of a mountain of emails that you come back to. They come back to a mountain of requests, a mountain of problems, a mountain of decisions, a mountain of challenges and hurts. This is an interesting scene to see that this guy sort of cries out above the rest. There's a crowd of people pressing in on you. Some of you, your natural bent is to always go after the squeaky wheel. Whoever shouts the loudest, that's who gets your attention. I would plead with you, if you look at the whole of Scripture, the whole of Scripture says sometimes go against your instinct. If you do that, your quiet, introverted, um, shy child who doesn't tend to raise up their needs will be overlooked in your family. Some of you are just the opposite. You're like, if you're loud and boisterous and obnoxious and shove your needs in my face, I will never listen to you. I beg of you. At times, go against your personal instinct. I think it takes real discernment, the Spirit of God, to say, God, help me not to be immediately annoyed and say, I will never listen to the squeaky wheel. The squeaky wheel gets the grease in in this story. He's the loudest. He speaks up above the crowd, and Jesus acknowledges him. 
At other times, there are scenes where the person isn't even asking Jesus, and he turns and gives his full attention and brings the full weight of his glory onto that person. So here the squeaky wheel gets the weight. By the way, why is this guy so loud? Because it's another desperate father. Remember John Q? What does John Q do for his sick and dying child? Anything. He does things he would never consider doing. We have another desperate father who cannot help his child. And so in a shame honor culture, he chucks all social norms aside and he humbles himself by begging to Jesus. It says he begged to the disciples. He is making a fool of himself on behalf of his child. Parents, hear me clearly. This is an incredible place to get to with your child. You have a high and noble calling if you are gifted with a child in your life. You are to go to Jesus and beg for that child's salvation. You are just to plead, even if it makes you look foolish, plead and plead some more and knock and keep knocking on behalf of that child. This is what parents do. Your child needs a savior, but he's so cute and cuddly. I know, trust me, your child needs a savior. You cannot provide what your child needs most. If you have forgotten this parent, you know how easy it is to pick it back up? It's easy as as the mercies are new today. You begin again pleading for your child's salvation to Jesus. That's, That's the great noble work of parenting. We have a desperate father here. He's begging and pleading and making a fool of himself because he loves his child. He explains the problem and then he sort of rats out the inability of the disciples. I tried to do this, but these guys couldn't get it done. What's the deal? Then Jesus speaks up. When Jesus speaks up, it's always a good thing. Amen? Of course it is. All right, verse 41. Jesus answered, Here's his words. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. There are sometimes we can get clues at how something is said in the scriptures based on context. But don't you wish you had little notes that sort of gave the tone of how Jesus said this? Anyone else with me in thinking that sounds a little bit harsh? As one who is seeking to love the Lord and minister in his name, I read this and I go, ouch, that's kind of harsh. Both to the disciples and maybe to the man and to the crowd hearing it. What's happening here? Why, why would gentle lamb Jesus answer in this way? It's interesting that he doesn't scold or be exasperated with the demons, but he's exasperated with the people around him. I don't know how you read this, but it's not overly clear from the text who the target of his words are. It could be the disciples. It could be the man making the request. Or it could be the crowds. There's a little bit of wiggle room to make a case for any one of those. But here's something really powerful I want to show you. What he is doing, and this would not have been lost on the Jewish people he was talking to. He was referencing two Old Testament passages 
by linking these two phrases together that he just said, he was quoting from their Bible. And what those both are is a condemnation for the faithless covenant people of God, the Israelites. So it is a, it is a rebuke to the insiders with God on their lack of faith. So the way a Jewish person would have heard, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? They would have heard, I know those, those are two Old Testament passages, and both of those were God's condemnation of faithfulness, faithlessness on the part of Israel, God's covenant people. So why was there a failure with this particular family? If you remember, Ben preached a few weeks ago, the disciples had already been sent out on a missions trip. They had been given all authority by Jesus, the King of Kings, and they had had successful, immediate fruit from their missions trip. Zach just gave report. We had five people, was it five or six? Five or six people receive Christ, make decisions for Jesus Christ. Sometimes you go on missions trips, sometimes you have a purpose in ministry, and you get to see immediate fruit of it. I love that Zach's story contained both. And his eyes of faith showed that that last person that didn't make a decision didn't mean he was a failure. He said, you know what? We're called to be faithful witnesses. I can't bring a dead person to life spiritually. That's all on the work of God. Sometimes you go on a missions trip one year, it's unbelievable. You just see all this tangible fruit and you prep and plan thinking you're going to have the same experience. And what happens the next year, the next month, the next week you go back? In your eyes, it falls totally flat. There's nothing but trouble and problems. They just came off a successful missions trip, uh, and, and, and here they are stymied by this child and the, and, the, and the demon that is possessing them. What I want you to see is this. That Jesus takes us deeper than what the, the naked eye can see and focus on, and he leads us to and calls out the role of faith in healing. Let me just review in our mind about Luke for a minute, a few words of Jesus. He turns to a woman. He says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Elsewhere, we see that an entire region is unbelieving, and it says it prevented Jesus from doing miracles and healings in that place. Because a particular region was so hard-hearted and their belief was so hard-hearted. So do you see that he's talking to an individual? Daughter, your faith has saved you. So could this passage be talking about the man making the request that he's faithless? It could be. Could it be talking about the crowds? It could be because in elsewhere we see that Jesus left a region because he couldn't do ministry there. He was actually inhibited because of their unbelief. What we see is that Jesus is exasperated with unbelief of this generation. In fact, if you read this account in Mark, uh, it goes on to include this instruction that Jesus said it was, Jesus pointed to a lack of prayer And Matthew, recounting this same event, says it was due to a lack of faith. So either way, what we see is that it's spiritual in nature. In fact, what plagues this boy and the cure are both spiritual in nature. So remember from last week, if you stare at what is seen, if you are obviously, if you're always looking at what the naked eye can see, you're going to miss the root of the problem. And you're going to miss the cure. It is spiritual in nature. We are to stare at what is unseen, which if that sounds insane, go back and listen to it last week. I kind of covered some of what that was looking at. Simply staring at surface things is like a doctor looking at the outside of your body for what ails you, for what's wrong. 
For some things, that's okay, right? But for most things, you have to go deeper than just looking at the outside surface of the body. So it is with our soul. Let me give you some surface things to stare at in ministry that are, that are um, verses, verses going a little bit deeper, okay? And as a finger in the wind, very non-scientific research project, here's what I would say. I would say 80 to 90% of the complaints of people who say, man, I could never be a Christian because of the church experience I had. Or I still love Jesus. I'm really wrestling with just plugging into a body of believers in the church. It's just really let me down time and time again. If I were to press into that and say, what are some specific things that are, that are frustrating you, that, that are hard? I would say somewhere between 80 and 90% are, are surfacey kinds of things. They are fairly temporal kinds of things rather than looking deeper. Let me give you uh, some of what I'm talking about. I think techniques in ministry is surface. I think motive in ministry is underneath. I think that atmosphere and location is a surfacey thing to look at. And I think that the heart behind the people there and what's going on is going deeper. And I think that words talked about, mission uh, statements promoted, websites putting things in writing is a very surfacey thing to look at. I think actions are going deeper. And a long track record of what a church is, not do they have a slick mission statement put together. I think that it takes a while for our eyes to adjust. So if, if we are trained to look at surfacey things and be put off or attracted by surfacey things, I just think it takes a while for our eyes to adjust. Just like if you've been in the dark and then a little bit of light comes in, it takes a little while for your eyes to adjust to this. But spiritual sight is something that God is working with you on. He wants you to see things spiritually. He's telling us over and over and over again, where's your faith? Where's the faith of these people? I'm inhibited because there's unbelief going on here. So what's the cure? Here's the cure. Operate in Christ. Operate in Christ. So if you want to be effective in ministry, you operate in Christ. The battle is against spiritual dullness and unbelief. So the battle, even in the battle, let me use Zach's example of this guy that they passed all the time on this, on this school bench. If... If he were thinking in surfacey ways, he would think if I could just turn a phrase correctly, if I could just answer things quickly, if I had a sharper mind, if I had a better illustration, I think I could get this guy. And that's not what's really going on. I love that they prayed for him every day. God, we want to remain being faithful witnesses. You've opened my eyes to see. No one could have gotten me in a headlock and shown me my sin and need for a savior. You showed me that. Would you show this guy his need? And while you're showing him, can we just be a faithful witness? The battle is against, not against flesh and blood, but it's spiritual in nature. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Catch this in ministry. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Christian, hear me. You are made to be a minister of Jesus Christ. You're gifted to be that. That's already true. You don't need to sign up for a church program. That's already true of you. So how do you walk in that? How do you operate in Christ? John 15, 5, Jesus lends more picture to this. He says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears how much? Much fruit. You're going to bear much fruit as you just abide in me. 
And then he says this, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Almost every Sunday without fails, I'm sitting, I'm sitting right here this week. I tend to move around. But as I'm sitting there, I just realize, God, this is not about a speech. What's about to go on with the, the reading of the word and the proclamation of the word is a spiritual thing. If you don't show up and if you don't move in the hearts and minds of people, there is nothing I could do. This is a waste of time. Would you work in me as the preacher to make these things true? Would you work in us as a church? And we rely on the sufficiency of the word. God, you've made me a minister to do this, not because of my great track record, but you've called me to this. I'm going to be faithful to it. It's just a reminder that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Let me give you one more verse that talks about this. Colossians 3.23 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Work your tail off, Christian. Work heartily, not to be seen by other people. Work heartily because God does see everything that you do. We are laborers for Christ. People say, I joined a ministry, but it's hard. I'm like, praise God, you're starting to get it. We're slaves of Jesus Christ. It's a labor of love. Roll up your sleeves and get to work. All right, here's the second sickness. The second sickness is not heeding the words of Jesus. Look at verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. There's a whole bunch more to say about this, but let me look at three things really clearly. Number one, Jesus' words are to sink into us. They didn't sink into the disciples here. Central to the message of Jesus, what did he want to talk about? He wanted to talk about the cross. Central to the mouth and the words of Jesus is the cross. It's not only central to all of history, he keeps bringing it back to them. And thirdly, I think this is true of humans in general, people tend to fear what they don't understand. And so they don't want to press in deeper. They go, betrayed by the hands of men. What? Their misconception of what a Messiah would be and the time frame of it was all pop culture. It was that they were going to overthrow the Romans. They'd be ruling pretty soon. They were figuring stuff out on a completely different timetable. When Jesus brought a scary message, they were offended by it. It is really, really easy on this topic of this sickness of not heeding the words of Jesus. It's really, really easy to throw this phrase out. I left that church. I can't be a part of that church because they don't preach the word of God or because they don't really live the word of God. Let me tell you what that does. And this is why you should be really cautious in saying this. I think there are times that's completely true. I think that's a good reason to leave the church if it's true. But here's why I'd say be slow about that and be very slow about opening your mouth to tell other people about why you left that church. Here's why. I think it oftentimes reveals a low self-image of yourself and you are bringing others. Here's Here's what you're doing immediately. You are immediately putting yourself as one who has eyes and wisdom to be able to judge and discern between those who who really preach the word of God or don't. Do you see that? It immediately elevates you as the speaker saying that. And it immediately places in judgment a whole host of people who may be diligently trying to move the ball and diligently trying to heed the word of Jesus, but they're not doing it to, to your satisfaction. 
Sometimes when someone comes and says, I could never be a part of that, I left that ministry, I didn't do that because they weren't preaching the word of Jesus. Sometimes, not always, that is Christian dressing up for, I was personally offended. The pastor didn't do things to my taste and preference. I was personally called out on sin, and so I'm going to turn around and use Christianese to sort of vengefully get back at them. There is a host of reasons. This happens in the dating world all the time in Christians, right? Well, I'd, I'd still be dating that person, but they just, they aren't really passionate about God every day. They don't really pray and love the Lord. Again, that may be true, but why are you opening your mouth to a lot of people about that? That looks an awful lot like gossip to me. That looks an awful lot like putting a Christian spin on something that elevates you as in the right and sort of builds a coalition for you. Wow, you must be super godly if you can't put up with that person. So be careful saying that. I personally know of many, many churches and institutions that are seeking to be faithful to the words of Jesus uh, in the midst of an ever-increasing social pressure to not be. And there are churches that are going by the wayside. They are not giving time and credence in their services to really heeding the words of Jesus. So both are true. I think a powerful thought for Christians who are members of churches is this, that a church is not as strong as the teaching pastors. Rather, the church is as strong as the average member is. Here's an exercise in your community group questions if you want to partake in it. But just think about this. Do this exercise around these two very, very specific things. If everyone in my church were as attentive and obedient to the words of Jesus as I am, this is the kind of church we would have. Do that exercise for yourself, average church attender. How about an effectiveness of ministry? If everyone in my church prayed in faith as much as I do, our church would be, and you can fill in the blank. What is the cure to this? It's to cooperate with letting Jesus' words sink in. It's just to cooperate with that. Let me give you, I think on the back side of your notes, uh, and they may be all written in for you, but I just want to highlight something. Um, that there are, there, are, there are very tangible, specific ways to cooperate with letting Jesus' words sink in. One of them you're already doing. It's that you gather with God's people regularly. You just keep showing up. Not because the music was popping that day, not because you love the color of our chairs, not because the coffee. Those are superficial things. You keep showing up to say as an act of worship, I'm going to sit under the teaching of God's word. So what that means is this, that together on a Sunday morning, you come and and study God's word and alone throughout the week, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another with all wisdom. Number two is this, you meditate and memorize the Bible. Psalm 119 just has this idea of God's word hidden in your heart. You know what happens when the word of God sinks into you? The word of God comes out of you. You find your speech and your attitude and what you don't say coming out of you in the form of fruit. And you look at that over time and you go, what's the deal? The deal is the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly and is actually forming you. 
There are things I used to think were funny in my 20s. I don't think they're funny anymore. I look at them really as impure and unholy, and I just go, I feel embarrassed that I used to laugh at that. God's given me a sensitivity to things uh, in, my, in my 40s that I didn't have in my 20s. I hope that as I continue to grow, I would look and just continue to be shaped by God's word. Those of you who know me well or not well know I have a long way to go, and I'm excited for the journey. Number three is this. To sit under the word of God as a learner rather than over the word of God as judge. James 1.21 says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Why? Because those two things don't go hand in hand. You don't actively live in rebellious sin and expect to gain spiritual sight. You aren't being a steward of what you already know is wrong. So put it away and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The last one is this, put his words into practice. The very next verse in James says, but be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. We're to heed the words of Jesus, not simply hear them on our ears. Ben, come on up. I didn't start with this because this can sound like Christian cliche and sort of roll out of your mind as meaningless. But here's a reality. We're about to sing this song, Remedy. This song talks about looking to Jesus as the remedy, but also to becoming the remedy. That we medicate on Jesus and we literally bring that to the masses, to everyone we meet. So when I show that central truth that Jesus diagnoses the sickness, he prescribes the cure, and he offers himself as the medicine. Now, do you see if I started with that, you would have nodded, thought, wow, that's so deep. And it could have just been Christian cliche bumper sticker that bears no weight in our life. But let me show you these two individuals and what Jesus is to them and what Jesus can be to us. To those who are tormented and trapped in darkness, Jesus is the light of the world. He doesn't preach a message pointing to the light. He is the light of the world. So as you let his words sink in, he turns darkness into light. On the cross, Jesus stands between us and Satan. He stands between us and judgment. He stands between us and hell. Jesus is the light of the world. And to those of you not letting Jesus' words sink in, Jesus is the Word made flesh. He lives the perfect love of God which casts out fear so that we're able to hear and see the message of God. Not just words on a page, but a life lived in our midst. Let's sing this song together and... um,